Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. This week, as we close out Hispanic Heritage Month, we're gonna take a closer look at entrepreneurship in Latinx communities. The U.S. is home to more than 60 million Hispanic or Latinx people. And over the past 10 years, the number of Latino entrepreneurs grew 34% compared with just 1% for all business owners in the U.S. If we think about kind of a longstanding decline in entrepreneurial dynamism, which we're seeing for the United States over time, Latinos are really revitalizing this American tradition of starting businesses. To think through this topic, I spoke with an expert from the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies at the Stanford Graduate School for Business. Marlene Orozco, Lead Research Analyst with the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative. We call it SLAY for short. Marlene sees entrepreneurship as a conduit to greater economic security. My research is on immigrant integration and pathways of social mobility for immigrants and for minority individuals more broadly. And this work really allows us to think about entrepreneurship as one of those pathways for upward mobility. In her work at Slay, Marlene aims to paint a picture of Latino businesses using data as her paintbrush, and they collect their own survey data. It's a data collection effort on an annual basis, which I'm really excited about because it's timely data. And we leverage kind of external sources of data, namely the census, but it provides kind of aggregate trends overall. And here with our own survey that we collect, we're able to, to drill down deep and, and better understand both the, the challenges on, and the opportunities facing the Latino business uh, segment, which we know is one of the, is the fastest growing amongst all of the business population. Slay's annual survey includes over 5,000 Latino business owners nationwide, and they also maintain a survey panel of the same 1,000 business owners that are asked questions regularly. They serve the basis of kind of our, our longitudinal research where we are, in fact, able to look at their experiences over time. The creation of these panels has been really key in terms of understanding the ongoing impact of the pandemic as we're living it in, in real time. I asked Marlene to set the baseline of what we know about Latino entrepreneurship. For anyone who's really interested in in population trends, we know, I think, across the board that Latinos represent a sizable population. 18% of the U.S. population is is Latino, and this is projected to grow to be a third of the U.S. population by 2060. I think what is less well known is that Latinos are starting businesses at a much faster rate than their population growth. And in fact, they're also outpacing all other demographic groups in terms of starting businesses. If we look at the last 10 years alone, the number of of Latino business owners has grown 34%, where it's just been 1% for all other business owners. And so if we think about kind of a long-standing decline in entrepreneurial dynamism, which we're seeing for the United States over time, Latinos are really revitalizing this American tradition of starting businesses. As you can imagine, the pandemic has hit businesses of all types incredibly hard, and more on that in a minute. But let's try to get a sense of what Latino entrepreneurship looked like before COVID-19. Before the pandemic, by many accounts, Latino-owned businesses were moving in a positive direction. 
since 2015, we have released this annual report, the State of Latino Entrepreneurship, where we started to highlight a lot of the positive attributes among the Latino business segment, including this growth in number of new businesses. Latinos also have a propensity to conduct business globally, which is which is correlated to growth. And then also this general expanding of the narrative of who a Latino business owner is. Latino business owners are more highly educated than the general Latino population. They have a greater rates of home ownership. And altogether, really, entrepreneurship is, is being forged as a pathway to upward mobility. Given kind of these positive attributes, however, a really important reality persisted that Latino business owners start small and stay small. And if we consider all Latino-owned businesses, employer and non-employer alike, we've calculated that there's a $1.5 trillion opportunity gap if Latino-owned businesses generated, on average, what in revenue, what their non-business counterparts generated. That is just a massive figure. So why does this gap exist? This gap in revenue really can be attributed to a variety of factors, including historical gaps in wealth in the Latino community, a lack of access to capital, and really a a slow revitalization of urban communities. And so if we think about uh, wealth in particular, uh, Latinos have one-eighth of the wealth that white households have. And we know that business, small businesses are really started by personal savings and that of your family and friends. And so this is a real limitation in terms of scaling. If we think about capital, we know that, first of all, less than half of Latino business owners in a given year are applying for external sources of capital, right? So that's the top of the funnel. And so many, uh, many are counting themselves out of this possibility for growth, because we do find that in order to scale, external sources of capital are really key to take your business to that next level. Marlene says that there are structural issues, systemic issues that can stem from discrimination that forces Latino and other minority entrepreneurs to seek less traditional sources of capital. There have been lots of mystery shopper studies, audit studies that show that, in fact, minority entrepreneurs experience differences with uh, kind of traditional financial lending institutions in terms of the information that they're provided, the services they're provided. And then ultimately, we see that Latinos are leveraging kind of um, high risk, high interest sources to then grow and scale their business. And in fact, if we think about national banks, which have been kind of the historical way that small businesses have secured and gr- uh, capital and grown their business, Latinos are not having much success with national businesses. In fact, Latinos are securing capital from small businesses, community development, financial institutions, CDFIs, at a much higher rate than they are these larger national banks. Jorge Gonzalez is a research analyst at the Urban Institute who also studies small businesses and Latino entrepreneurship, and he's seen similar trends. In our interviews with especially immigrant Latino entrepreneurs, there is almost this cultural apprehension towards getting debt. Immigrants in this country feel a little bit more vulnerable in their overall immigration status situation, and they don't want to take on liabilities. So that prevents them from, you know, first from taking that step of, you know, starting your own business and also to make it grow, to scale it, and and to really make it thrive. They don't have those connections that businesses in higher income areas perhaps have with financial institutions like large banks. In these cases, he says community development financial institutions, or CDFIs for short, can really help. Community development financial institutions, which are nonprofit, basically are nonprofit banks, 
are playing a big, big role with this with CDFIs that can provide capital at more affordable rates. And CDFIs not only are capital providers or loan providers, they package their services again with technical assistance. So they also guide these borrowers to be better prepared to, to request a loan and to better apply it into their businesses. Jorge says many of these services are targeted at entrepreneurs in the food and accommodation industry, where Latinos have a strong representation. So in many places around the country, for example, there's a, a, a big barrier of entry to start your own food business because above a certain volume, you cannot cook your food in your own home if you're going to, to sell it you know, for commercial purposes. So you have to find, in many cases, an industrial kitchen or a commissary kitchen. And this, this can be very pricey. And a lot of these entrepreneurs, Latino immigrant entrepreneurs living in low-income neighborhoods, that is a big barrier of entry for them. So these organizations have created, for example, shared uh, kitchen spaces that are rented at lower than market rate and are also paired with a curriculum where they help these entrepreneurs make the best use they can of those uh, facilities for their business. 2020 has really brought this need to better connect entrepreneurs with financial institutions into sharper focus. A lot of the challenges that had persisted before the pandemic, there's kind of now a laser focus in terms of the rapid need for relief aid and the inability of financial institutions to then be connected to Latino, Latinos and other minority businesses in terms of ensuring survival in this pandemic. And it's not just barriers to accessing capital that affect Latino businesses. It also matters where they're located. We know that many Latino-owned businesses are located in, in enclaves or business clusters, largely in city centers and urban communities. And research has shown that in urban minority communities, there tends to businesses located there tend to have lower profitability. Most recently, in, in our research report that we released last year, we were starting to look closely at this new piece of legislation, Opportunity Zones, that came into effect in 2017. And we found that Latino-owned businesses have a higher average um, annual revenue growth if they're located in opportunity zones relative to those that are not. And so we're starting to see a focus, certainly in pre-pandemic times, in terms of revitalization of city centers where Latino businesses are located. And so, you know, I think some of this work, unfortunately, has has stalled. But that's kind of the general view of where Latino businesses were in pre-pandemic times. So that gives us a sense of the high-level picture of Latino entrepreneurship before COVID, but we know that businesses have been massively affected in recent months. The barriers to success have been larger than ever. It was terrifying, you know, the unknown, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing how long this is going to be for. That's Josh Melendez. He's the owner and head coach at CrossFit Be Someone, a gym in Houston. Josh grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and purchased the gym in 2017. I actually have quite a few uncles in New York who own their own businesses and they're very successful with it. And then my parents, they own the restaurant here in Houston for two years. So the thought of being an entrepreneur is always in the back of my mind. Josh took us back to last spring when stay-at-home orders were put in place and all non-essential businesses, including gyms, were told to close. We would think maybe two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, it shouldn't. But it was still a big unknown factor, right? And then the fear, you start, you start hearing about people's fear and everything, which is legitimate, you know? Trying to figure out what we were going to do. There's a group setting. People enjoy that. How do we recreate that setting 
uh, that same type of atmosphere out, outside of the gym, right? Josh turned to a business mentorship program to help him quickly adapt. But I ended up having to, to create a whole new business of online personal training with the help of our mentorship program within a, a four to five day window. So we had to create this whole new service. I had to teach it to my coaches. We had to understand exactly what it is that we're doing here. And then, then, we, and then we had to tell all of our members about it. Luckily, you know, we, we ended up holding on to a lot of our members that way. We still lost quite a few, but this kept us afloat and to be able to, you know, so to pay bills, pay my staff and pay myself and be in a position where we can still support our own lives. Having cash on hand has been crucial to helping business owners out during the pandemic. Here's Marlene. We're seeing right now during the pandemic is this immediate need for liquidity, for cash in order to to stay afloat, to pay one's expenses. For many, short-term support from the government has been an important lifeline. The seminal piece of legislation here that has come from the federal government has been the Paycheck Protection Program. The PPP is set to expire on Saturday, August 8th. For those who have not yet applied for a loan, there is still about $128 billion left in funding as of July 31st. So far, more than 5 million loans have been made for a total of $521 billion. Now, this piece of legislation was targeted to businesses that are employer businesses. So you have, uh, you know, at least one paid employee on payroll other than the, the business owner, him or herself, which is actually quite uh, the focus of, of a lot of the research that we conduct is on this segment of business owners. Josh was able to get one of these loans, which helped him keep paying staff during this time of great uncertainty. So we, we did. We, we did get a, the, the PPP loan. We were able to maintain most of our members, but we did lose quite a few. And just to ensure, right, that my staff and everybody that, that were still able, to, I'm still able to pay them for their work and everything, we did take that PPP loan. Similar to what we were seeing before COVID-19, Latino business owners still haven't had access to this funding in the way that white business owners have. Our recent surveys have shown that Latinos were half as likely to access PPP funding relative to their white counterparts. And again, kind of these audit studies, this mystery shopper programs have found lending discrimination with the PPP program. In its initial wave, the funding was largely dispersed through these national banks. And our research has uncovered that Latinos are not being serviced by national banks. And so a large swath of Latinos and other minority entrepreneurs were really left behind with that first wave. In the second wave of PPP, the lenders were expanded to include these CDFIs. But even then, a big challenge of the the PPP program has been this lack of data that's been collected around the, the lenders in terms of their racial and ethnic background. So our surveys come into play when we see kind of in terms of those that the Latino businesses that have been able to access PPP funding, again, it's less, it's, it's half of their white counterparts. So you can see how this problem compounds. Latino businesses who have not had access to credit in the past are now being excluded from access to financial supports that are the difference between a business staying open and shutting down. Here's Jorge. I think as we move on to possibly, hopefully, a new phase of federal support to small businesses, I think it's important to understand how difficult it is to relieve money to get to those most vulnerable and most underserved businesses, because all these structures, all these pre-existing structures will come into play and money will more, most likely be channeled towards those more affluent businesses that have more opportunities and connections and 
financial relationship. And those aren't the only challenges of the Paycheck Protection Program. The seminal piece of legislation, the PPP, has subsequently closed down its applications in April. And so what we're seeing now is as business owners across the board are really kind of in limbo in terms of what additional relief aid will look like, if at all. And for those who were successful with the initial wave of the PPP, they're in this stage of limbo where now they're seeking to be forgiven. Right. I think the average for some banks was around $70,000. So if you're a business owner, you now have accrued $70,000 in debt by no fault of your own, and you're looking to be forgiven so that you can then kind of see a future for your business. And so there's lots of business owners who are waiting for additional legislation to be forgiven. So what does this uncertainty mean for the future? And what could Latino entrepreneurship look like during the COVID-19 recovery? I think moving forward, we're going to continue to see this entrepreneurial dynamism amongst Latinos. Really, if we think about entrepreneurship as a survival skill, even among those businesses that are likely to close as a result of the pandemic, you know, there might be opportunities to start new ventures and new ideas. For Josh, it means new approaches to how the gym operates. We kept the online personal training service. We were able to reach out to individuals in different places. I even we, in the, we ended up even uh, re-signing up one of our members. She ended up moving to Colombia with her husband. She saw we were now doing uh, online PT. She reached out. We were able to get her back as a member that way. You know, So I'm able to help our individuals outside of Texas. And while he's since reopened, he's had to reduce the number of people who can be in the building. But he says this isn't necessarily a bad thing. In my personal opinion, I think the quality has just improved a lot better. Because even, even though, you know, we can only allow 12 athletes in class, it gives a coach an opportunity to really see 12 athletes. It's a lot easier to coach 12 athletes versus coaching 16 athletes. Marlene is also seeing ways that businesses are pivoting, particularly within the hard-hit food industry. There's one uh, business owner, Lorena, who has an empanada shop in the, in the Denver area. Before the pandemic, she was very successful in hosting empanada-making classes. Uh, to her consumers uh, at one of her seven restaurants. And then, you know, she thought she was going to have to close this revenue stream with social distancing protocols and, of course, lots of local ordinances requiring limits on uh, on people in, in restaurants. But then she thought, let's do these empanada making classes online. And so she packaged all of the materials that one would need to make empanadas. And then people would sign up for these, cl- would sign up for the classes, uh, pick up their materials, and then make empanadas at home together as a community. And so we're seeing some real pivots that are going to be key in terms of not only surviving the pandemic, but also fundamentally changing the way that business has been done in kind of a post-pandemic recovery. So entrepreneurs are no strangers to finding creative solutions to staying in business, but policymakers at every level of government have a key role to play also. I think the lesson for the federal government is look at CDFIs, channel more resources to CDFIs, channel more resources to CBOs, community development corporations working with small business owners and entrepreneurs, and also channel more funds to local governments to fund those relief funds for businesses at the local level that can be better channeled to the most underserved communities and the most underserved entrepreneurs. For Josh and his team at CrossFit Be Someone, they are busy making plans for the future and staying positive during these chaotic times. Our theme for next year is going to be legacy. So we're going to start talking about Do you want to be remembered 
And how do you want to be remembered? What has happened this year, right? I mean, aside from COVID, but beyond COVID, like we've seen a lot of ugliness, ugliness going on around us, right? It's really easy to get sucked into that stuff, right? With social media and everything, we're seeing it every single second of our lives. That does not have to be your way of life, right? That's that 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 ugliness, whatever. We we have we do have the ability to make this world a lot better, and it starts with us doing it within our own small world and our legacy, right? So if we're able to do that with a hundred people, and then those hundred people are able able to affect another hundred people, it keeps now now it's growing, right? So the, the the mission of next year is going to be creating legacies and having everybody create a legacy within uh, their lives. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. One, Latino entrepreneurship in the U.S. has been growing for years, even faster than their relative population rate. However, Latino business owners are relatively smaller than their white counterparts, and they still face discrimination and systemic challenges to accessing the same capital as white business owners. Two, the pandemic is hitting Latino business owners hard, and they face barriers to accessing the capital they need to weather this storm. The Paycheck Protection Program helped many Latino entrepreneurs, but exclusion from those funds and other supports will slow their recovery. And three, in the end, federal, state, and local policymakers and organizations such as community development, financial institutions, all have a role to play in ensuring Latino business owners can recover equitably from the economic hits of the pandemic. So that's our show. Huge thank you to Marlene Orozco, Josh Melendez, and Jorge Gonzalez. You can read more about their work on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. Also, big thanks to producers Kate Villarreal and Veronica Gaetan and Jacinth Jones. Thanks as always to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co, that's P-O-D-I-G-Y.co. If you appreciate the show or enjoyed this episode in particular, head to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. We really appreciate the feedback and it helps other people discover the show. Our music is by Moby. On behalf of the Critical Value team and my two kids who continue to be co-producers. I hope you like the podcast and have a good, good, good day. Goodbye.